Bad leaders are everyone's worst nightmare, giving you the ultimate playbook to lead, inspire, and grow your team. Better tech leadership powered by BrainHub. Uh, Jason, I'm, I'm really happy to have you here and that you have found some time to, have, uh, to uh, tell a few interesting stories about your uh, startup life, your life at the Airbnb, and your lessons learned uh, from many companies that you co-founded and run. Thanks a ton for having me, Matt. It's, uh should be fun. So I know you a bit. Uh, we talked a few times, but maybe you could do like really short introduction about yourself and your secret sauce and speciality, Evan. <laughs> the short version. It all started when I was six and... Uh... <laughs> Um, somewhat shorter or version would be like engineer by training, um, did a master's in engineering, worked as an engineer for a little while, uh, both software and hardware realized kind of early on that I was really interested in business. And, and I think I knew I didn't really want to go back to school and I got very lucky. I wound up getting what I would call like a practical MBA. I found a startup. I, I somehow convinced them, I guess it wasn't that hard to like, let me work for free in business. I don't have anything on paper that says I can do it, but I feel like I can. It, it, I got quite lucky. Uh, they wound up hiring me. Um, the leadership there, particularly the CEO, really took me under his wing and said, hey, like, you can sit here and be exposed to all this stuff, which is way above your pay grade, as long as you don't say anything and you take notes, uh, which was great for me. So I got exposure pretty early on to like uh, partnership stuff, fundraising stuff, commercialization stuff. Uh, worked there for a chunk of time, had a software project on the side, jumped, thought, hey, I could probably do this myself in like total blissful ignorance. Did okay. Um, my partner wanted to continue with the business. I wanted to do something a bit bigger. We split very amicably. I went the VC route, raised a bunch of money, uh, built the company a couple of years, crashed it. Uh, probably a conversation for another podcast, but happy to happy to chat about it if it's interesting. Like, wouldn't change or trade the experience for anything. It really, you know, taught me a lot, both about business um, and, and about myself. My confidence was in the gutter. Um, crashing a company doesn't feel the best, that's for sure. And I uh, got lucky again, you know, one of my investors whose money I had almost entirely lost, I guess, thought enough of me from his experience over the years uh, building the company. He said, hey, Jay, I think you should go meet this team. You know, you, you might find them interesting. That was the folks at Airbnb. And, uh, about a couple of weeks later, I wound up joining to uh, lead growth originally in Canada, where I was living at the time, and then working on some uh, more like global operations stuff. Had my first kid on the way after a couple of years, was flying all the time, had teams and people reporting into me from all sorts of places. So I really wanted to be based in my hometown. Did the only thing that felt normal and safe to me. Joined a very early stage startup. There were like two people, half a slide deck, no product, no customers, nothing um, in the AI space, uh, you know, in the original hype cycle, which was a, a chunk of years ago now. Worked there for a bunch of time. Um, got to build a company up, like really grateful for the team um, that was there. And then had a bit of a uh, unexpected moment in my life, you know, one of these moments that just kind of rocked you a little bit. Again, happy to talk about it, but you may not want to go deep uh, in, into this particular topic. I, I wound up losing my sister um, at a, a relatively young age. She was 37 at the time. And it really kind of jolted me to step back and say, like, 
how am I choosing to live my life? You know, it's one of those, one of those very existential moments. And I realized that, um, the way I had been working wasn't really super sustainable, pretty much charging like 150 miles an hour at all times and trying to keep all the balls juggling, um, at the same time. Um, and realized, hey, like, I really want to go and experience something in a different way. Um, I realized I had kind of like lost the joy in my day to day. You know, I, I was always working on hard problems with I, which I loved, but I'd lost the joy of doing the hard problems. And as I started getting that joy back, I realized, hey, there's a lot of people in different but similar situations. And I wound up uh, jumping into something that was like very aligned with this mission I have now, which is to like help people enjoy doing the hard things in their lives. Because I had a background in startups, I decided, hey, I'm going to start working with founders, executives, and, and help them build companies that their people like really love working for. It's awesome. I really love it. I'm writing a book now, which I'm super excited about called Quietly Crushing It, which is all about um, how to unlock like big impact at work without the burnout in life. That was supposed to be short. It wound up being longer than intended, but there you go. No, thank you. Thank you for uh, for the introduction. I, I think now we have like a clear picture of uh, yourself and we can start to dig deeper uh, into your experience. Anyway. <laughs> and I think for, for many people, it would be really interesting to understand uh, how was uh, how were the early days uh, in Airbnb because this is really famous startup, pretty successful. Um, have you met the founders? Like how was the work culture there? Yeah. I, I mean, to be clear, I joined when I would classify Airbnb as kind of out of the startup stage. It was in the scale up stage. Um, company was hundreds of people when I joined and I consider myself very fortunate that I got to experience the hundreds of people to thousands of people ramp, um, in a relatively short time company was growing, you know, really, really fast. And I think that's probably the first thing, like getting exposure to that kind of growth, like a true Silicon Valley unicorn before unicorn was like the cool term and there was a million of them. Um, getting to really be around that level of growth and that growth mindset and how to think about how to both sustain the growth in terms of the business growth and um, the people. And I think for me, that, that was like one of the biggest learnings uh, when I joined there was just how people first the company was. I think because of my experience in engineering and how I'd kind of been doing things to date, uh, my leadership style was a lot more like execution and results first. You know, people are important, but they're kind of one of many important things in a project. And, you know, if, if Jay is not the right fit for the job, like, we'll just interchange. It'll be fine. You know, you kind of figure it out. But what I learned at Airbnb is I kind of had that wrong. Like the people are the process. The people are the solution. Like if you can really think deeply about and take care of your people, they will take care of the problems. They will meet the opportunities. And it really switched my mindset from one of like, okay, what do we have to get done? What are the steps to go and do it? Now just lock the people in and let's go. Uh, to one which is much more, if you give me a problem now, I think about the people. Like who are the people working on this problem? What do they care about? What are they trying to accomplish? What's going on in their lives? Who are the customers that are going to use this thing? What are they thinking about? What's important to them? And so really taking this people first mentality was, uh, it took me a couple of years to have it banged into my thick skull, but like Airbnb was a great place to learn it. And 
that for me really stood out as like a big cultural, uh, a big cultural difference that I, I really hadn't been exposed to in that way. That's, that's interesting. Uh, I, I didn't know that they are so people centric, especially during the really high growth, uh, pace that they had. I think it's really hard to be people-centric because the uh, company is different each year, even like each few months, and you kind of need a bit different skills, a bit different approach. And I, I was thinking like either you fit and you evolve with the company or you are out. This was my understanding with really such a fast... Uh... Yeah, like to, to be clear, you know, it wasn't like we were all working at a country club where like, yeah, yeah, Matt, it'll be great. Come on. Like, we'll sit back and like, we'll have a beer. It'll be all like people were working very hard, but it felt to me like there was a, like a good understanding of what that hard work cost. You know, like there was a lot of thought around how are we taking care of our people and the investment in doing that was surprising to me. Like a concrete example is I had never been to more offsites in my life than when I joined Airbnb, like regularly. And at first I was like, what the heck are we doing? Like, I got stuff to do here. Like, I got these targets. They're huge. I got a role. Like, I got to figure this stuff out. Like, do I really need to go with a bunch of people and like do some kind of strategic alignment offsite? And at first I was resistant to it. I'm like, this is a distraction. And what I learned is actually it's the opposite. This is the thing that was giving us traction because we were growing so fast. We were growing globally all over the place. It was really easy to have a lot of self-inflicted wounds, right? I'm doing a thing. I have no idea what Matt's doing. We're both charging in 27 different directions. We're not really aligned together. It's tough, right? The alternative is we sit down together and I learn what Matt's doing and how he's doing it, what's important to him. And I tell him what I'm doing, what's important to me. We talk about how that fits into what the company's trying to accomplish. And like nine times out of 10, there's a really good nugget that comes out of that. I couldn't have predicted it in advance. Mm -hmm. You couldn't have like engineered it to be like step one, step two, step three, and boom, there's the nugget. It's like, you kind of have to be in the room with Matt and things just kind of swirl around because you're creating space. And the next thing you know, something amazing comes out of it that the absence of that could have cost us in untold ways. So that was like my first taste of like, sometimes the slow way is the fast way. Oftentimes the slow way is the fast way. It feels slow to stop for a sec and talk to Matt about strategy when there's so much execution that needs to happen, but what it can save you from is really, is really unbelievable. And some incredible ideas came out of uh, all the offsites I was at. Some incredible relationships came out of all the offsites I was at. Um, and it, it just, you know, it, it really reinforced to me this idea that like, put the people for like truly put the people first, invest in them, figure out ways, really think deeply about them. When you manage people, understand what's going on in their lives and what's important to them and how they're trying to grow. And how do you put the people together? Like I genuinely believe that most people have the best intentions in mind. They're quite intelligent. They're not, if something's not working, they're not trying to make it not work. You know, how can you help them think differently and put them in situations to think differently? And I was thrown into many situations where it's just like this does not fit my mental model and you have a choice you push back on it or you embrace it and you learn a thing and when you embrace it you're like wow okay this is a very different way of doing business i see what they're trying to accomplish and those lessons just kind of stamp themselves on my brain 
And it's something that I spend a lot of time with execs and founders on now is they'll dive straight into the problem. You know, yada, yada, yada is not happening. One of my first questions is like, who's working on this? What's the team look like? We're the people on the other side of this thing. You know, we're trying to grow revenue. It's not growing as quickly as we can. Tell me about the sales team. Like, what do their incentives look like? How are their sales targets tracked? What are the last couple quarters look like? Are they feeling really stressed out? Are they really fired up about what's going on right now? Are they aligned? Do they understand the mission? Who's the leader involved? When's the last time they did one-on-ones? What do those skip levels look like? You know, all this kind of stuff. Like, who are the customers that we're selling to? Who are we talking to? What's going on for them right now? That stuff feels like the less important stuff. But more often than not, I find you dig into there and the solution comes out of there sooner than it comes out of, you know, what's ROAS or whatever the technical problem might be we might be solving, you know, what's, what's actually going on in the code. Those are amazing lessons learned. Uh, I think that could be applicable in many organizations. Um, you mentioned that you have learned from Airbnb. Is there anything else that you could say uh, was, or maybe one of those was, was the biggest lessons learned for you? That's probably the biggest one, but like, I'll tell you another thing that was super surprising to me. I had this idea. So, Airbnb was a couple hundred people. Like I knew about it, but it was not really well known. You know, one of the first things I had to do was like a lot of speaking, you know, going around and talking about Airbnb. And I would always do this thing, like put up your hand, uh, talking to a room full of people, put up your hand. If you stayed on Airbnb before, put up your hand. If you hosted your place on Airbnb, you know, put up your hand. If you've like heard about Airbnb, it was shocking at first, you know, there'd be a bunch of people who were just like, I don't know, there was free food at this event. So I showed up like, what's this thing? Uh, but because I was in the startup space, I, I had known a, a bunch about the company. I was expecting to come in and just see so much like incredible infrastructure and process and polish on everything. And what I saw, not that that stuff didn't exist, it was there in places, but I saw the same kind of duct tape and chewing gum at a couple hundred people that persisted to thousands of people that I was using in my startup that were much smaller before. And what is like, I think interesting and helpful about that is oftentimes I find, you know, as a founder, you might be sitting working with your company, looking at a cu- another one that's out there just a little bit further ahead of you thinking, my God, they're so much more advanced for me. They're probably in duct tape and chewing gum mode, just like you are. They just hide it better because they have, you know, more resource right now. And so I think it's a good thing for founders to keep in mind is like, yeah, you gotta, in a lot of ways, just duct tape and chewing gum the thing together. So it's doing the job, find the cheapest, fastest, best way. And like that mentality was very much, you know, inside of Airbnb in the early days. Like it it was not just in the early days. Like I wouldn't be shocked to go now. The company is, you know, well over a decade old and I'm sure there's some stuff going on inside of there that would not look so dissimilar from what a much earlier stage company is doing. And that kind of helps you. That's the recipe for, you know, moving really quickly. So don't be ashamed of the duct tape and chewing gum. Just kind of enjoy it. And I, I, I remember that every now and again, when I'm working with a company, they're like, this is way too hacky. And it's like, well, does it work? Yeah. Is it delivering the result we want? Yeah. Amazing. What? We'll fix it later. You know, as long as it's, as long as it's getting the job done, it's easier to circle back later and fix it. And just that forward momentum is the thing we're looking for. So don't be shy of the duct tape and chewing gum. You probably would be shocked if you looked under the hood at a, a lot of other companies and you would see very, very similar 
you know, duct tape and chewing gum to whatever stage that you're at now. It's, it's, it's all part of the process. Everyone does it. You know, it's nothing to be ashamed of. Nice. Uh, I love it. I think that in, in 21st century, the, 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 the solution is usually G-sheet. <laughs> yeah. So all the time. Very easy, right? You know, classic example, OpenAI, ChatGPT is like the fastest growing tool in the history of the internet. I think December or January, I got to sign up for the, you know, pre-release of the $20 a month, whatever it was. It was a Google form. They use Google Forms to take off into this like 100 million user trajectory. Like, got the job done. Might not be pretty, but like, yeah. did the job. And I'm pretty sure any company would be looking at, at ChatGPT OpenAI and saying like, yeah, I'd take that kind of growth. That started with a Google Form. Like, you know, it gets yeah. the job. It gets the job done. It's a very recent example. Like, if you can find a uh, uh, an inexpensive in, in both like resource and time, you know, th- money and time way to get the job done. Do it. You know, I, I think people will put up with that kind of stuff. I remember seeing the Google form and just laughing. Like I thought of my time at Airbnb and I was just like, amazing. Like, this is great that this is how they're choosing to get the job done. And I look forward to seeing whatever version two or three or four looks like. I have no idea how you sign up for it now, but you know, what mattered is they have a great product, really interesting value proposition okay, I sign up on a Google form. I'll put up with that. Like they totally got the job done. So embrace the duct tape. <laughs> it's there for a reason. Um, and uh, many of our listeners are tech or product leaders. And I know that you work with them uh, a lot those days and in the past. Uh, so probably you have seen many mistakes that they are making. And I'm just wondering if you could share some most common mistakes that you have seen uh, that the technicals leaders are doing. Yeah, I mean, it's been a long time since I wrote code, so like diving into the like specific technical things is is tough. I think um, when you like extrapolate beyond, okay, how are we solving the technical problems? Like, what are some things that exist at kind of the leadership level, and 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 how does that apply to um, tech folks? I think that this is something that is important for every leader, but there's something about the way many technical leaders think that I think makes this point a little bit more acute. And this is this idea of like explicit intent. So I have this idea that like, when we have implicit information, it impedes us. And when it's explicit, we can execute against it. And the idea is like, how do we make sure that whatever intent we have is being made explicit to our teams? Because the thinking is always very, very clear to us, or maybe not always, but often our thinking is clear to ourselves. And it's not always easy to spot the the places where, hey, I understand this perfectly. It's maybe not going to land this way with Matt or with this other person on the team. So trying to get your intent um, really explicitly stated can, can help a ton. There's kind of three places I tend to see this pop up. Feedback, goals, and and, um, decision-making. So on the feedback front, again, this is just like a guess from the time that I spend working with technical leaders now and, and like coaching them on their teams. I find that like technical leaders tend to have a different way of thinking from the other leaders in the organization. You know, they're not going to think necessarily like the sales leader or the marketing leader or operations leader. 
a better or worse, just different. And there's something about the nature of understanding and coming up learning how to break down a technical problem that I think develops, you know, different mental muscles, highly logical, highly rational, often very direct um, based on the kinds of problems that they're, they're solving. And sometimes I find that this can wind, wind up being uh, misunderstood. So I often have times when a technical leader will tell me, hey, I gave feedback to this person. And like they became very emotional. And when I ask the other leaders, they're like, they take feedback from me pretty well. Like what, what, what's happening here? And so a key thing to keep in mind is really making sure that your intent is very explicit when you give somebody feedback. So there's a big difference between I have some hard feedback that I want to give you and I'm sharing it because I'm seeing you do a great job and I really care about your progression and I want to see you do even better in the work. That's very different from I have some hard feedback to give you because you're currently underperforming and we need to change that. And when you have a more direct style of communicating and you hit Matt hard with like a very direct piece of probably very helpful feedback, it can be hard for people to understand where to put that. Is Matt telling me that I'm not doing my job well and I need to change or I'm going to have a major problem? Or is Matt telling me, hey man, you're doing great and I'm pushing you to be the best version of yourself. So you're getting very clear, direct communication from me. I really want to see you be the best version of yourself. Which one of those two camps are you in? They're very different. Or where on the spectrum are you? And have you made that clear to the person before you hit them with the feedback? So what is your intention with giving them the feedback? And how do you make explicit to them so they don't have to fill it in? I think that small step could go like a really, a really, really long way. It's the same with goals and decisions. You know, we have Goal setting all over the place. You can do OKRs. You can do SMART. I think what they all lack is like the intent. So a lot of times when I work with folks when they're setting goals, set the goal, use whatever mechanism you want, and write one sentence on the intention behind that goal. And this one sentence of intention can really help to empower people. Because it's one thing when Matt knows, hey, we're trying to make such and such a piece of code X percent more efficient fine, but he's in a bit of a narrow box there. Why does that matter? That matters because we're trying to scale to blah percent more customers, and we won't be able to do that at the cost we need to unless we can get this efficiency there. Great. Now Matt understands not just the goal, but why that goal is important. And he has the handcuffs off to you know, really think about all the different ways he can go and make that happen. He understands the context. When he's talking to people, it'll be easier for him to prioritize. It's very rare. We tend to like write down the goal and assume that the goal does all the work. And I find that it's missing like a critical component of like, why did we set this? Of all the goals we could have set, why did we pick this one and not these 20 other things that are also probably really interesting and could be good? And just take a second to like, here's the OKR. Here's the smart goal. Here's the thing on a Gantt chart. I don't recommend Gantt, but if that's the way, they're like, here's the thing. This is the what. Now make the intention very explicit. This is why we're doing it. So you know, so you understand, and we can all be on the same page. Same with decision-making. What's the decision we're making? Why are we making this decision? We probably could have made 20 different decisions. We picked this one for what reason? Yeah, I, I'm a huge believer in the context. Uh, so I fully agree with that. Um, and and you, you, you tackled the feedback. And I remember that the last time that we talked, uh, you mentioned to me this concept of 
how to get like uh, through feedback. This uh, it's called like a brief back, uh, right? Could you could you elaborate on that? Yeah, so that that one's a bit more about um, communication and like all communication uh, kind of comes back to like sorry, all feedback comes back to communication in some way, shape, or form. Um, and we kind of suck at it as humans, to be to be honest. So if it's cool, maybe I'll take like a half a step back. I could tell you about like the framework of the book because communicating is the first thing I talk about it, and I and I I think it's it's really quick critical so let me give you like a fifty thousand foot view of the book and then i'll zoom into like how's that possibly going to help me communicate better with people so the idea behind the book is i kind of like i told you earlier like i feel like i have this mission to help people enjoy doing hard things and i kind of lost my own joy in doing the hard things you know easy things are boring i like working on hard stuff but if you're working hard on hard stuff and it feels like a grind all the time life is short like what's the point and so the journey back for me wound up turning into this book, like not, not intentional. I was trying to figure out how to cope with losing my sister, which was, which was very, very challenging. And then I kind of discovered this new way I could work for myself. And I started sharing it with the people on my team who I'm lucky were very supportive. And then I, I kind of felt like I had some things that were really helping me and helping my team. And I wanted to put all my energy into it. I dove into to coaching and it has kind of coalesced over time into like, here's a bit of a and the whole idea is about how to get more practical about this idea of like working smarter, not harder, which is a thing everybody says. But like, I never really woke up in the morning and was like, hey, I have to get this job done. Like, I'm going to do it in the dumbest possible way I can. You know, there's not a lot of stuff out there that explains practically, like, how do I work smarter, not harder so that I can have the impact I want at work, which is very important to me, but not have it come at the expense of, I have to work a hundred hours now so that, you know, I can retire when I'm young at some point in the future and like not work for that. And so kind of developed this playbook with kind of three big pieces. The first is about creating more space. So this is how you can like avoid some of the most common workplace slowdowns. So you can free up your time and have the same amount of impact with less effort. And then once you do that, you can take the time that you free up and you can put it into like aligning your experience. This is like how to actually enjoy what you're doing more. And you can finish that all up with like, how do I progress faster once I've accomplished those? And the primary challenge I see is a lot of times when people think about personal growth, making a change, it always starts with like some kind of self-reflection or self-awareness or self-mastery or something like that, which is great and very important. But my learning was that like that kind of self-awareness, when you want to do it well, to really understand like, what am I doing? Why am I doing? How do I align my intent? You can't do it off the side of your desk. Like you're not going to finish a thing at 11 o'clock at night and just like have an epiphany about like, wait a minute, I might not be living my values at this particular, like it takes time and space. Most of us don't have that time and space because we're charging so hard at work. And that's why this thing has to come first of like creating space. Like where are there inefficiencies? How do we get rid of them so that we can have the same amount of impact with less effort? And then we can reinvest this effort that we no longer need to spend into like aligning our lives in a different way. And so the first thing that comes up when you think about like, how do I stop wasting time in some of the most common uh, ways is this idea of communication. 
I'm going to pause for half a sec because I have a bit of a sore throat and I got to have some water and that was just a little quick run through. Talk amongst yourselves. Um, okay. And so this is one of these things where like, I don't know, for me, a light bulb kind of went off when I realized it and I started thinking about it and structuring it down, but it feels very obvious when you hear about it. So uh, a lot of people have played the game Broken Telephone in, in, in grade school. Is that, is that a game you're familiar with? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So this is one of the most amazing examples to me of, of just like, I don't understand. So we play, play Broken Telephone. We line up a bunch of kids in school with usually a teacher or a bunch of adults or whatever. And we tell a message to the first kid and the first kid whispers it to the second kid and so on down the line until the last kid shouts a thing out and everybody laughs because what they say is completely disconnected from what the actual message was. It's an amazing exercise to teach us that we suck as human beings at communicating with them. All we're doing is sharing a sentence down the line. You could do it with adults. It happens with adults too. We, we realize that we're just sharing a message down the line and it gets garbled simply by me telling Matt and Matt telling the next person, the next person telling the next person. And we all laugh about it, but nobody ever stops and says like, okay, well, what's the solution to this problem? Because I'm going to be talking to people my whole life and like, I got to make sure I can actually get my points across really well. And if you zoom out and you think about, okay, we're not great at, at communicating, like what's the cost? There was a really interesting study done. I think it was last year. It showed that in the United States of America alone, they're wasting about $1.2 trillion every year because of workplace miscommunications. $1.2 trillion is more than the GDP of the vast majority of countries on this planet. I think there are only 14 countries on the planet that have GDPs higher than 1.2 trillion. So the United States of America is wasting more money because of miscommunications than most countries' economies are producing. Like, why is that happening? And if you kind of break that down to great, 1.2 trillion, that's a lot of money. Like, why should I care? If you break that down to the like level of an individual employee, it works out to roughly a full day of lost productivity every single work week because of workplace miscommunications. Maybe it's like, I'm going to go and work on a thing and I work on that thing and I hand it over to Matt. And then Matt tells me, why did you work on this? You were working on the thing. Maybe it's like time I'm spending in meetings, going back and forth, trying to understand what's going on. I'm having a debate that we don't really need to have. These kinds of things, like it's like paper cuts. You know, It never really feels like a full day wasted overall. It's like minutes and maybe hours over the course of a week add up to an entire day um, at the end of the week. And what it basically boils down to is a very common uh, misconception in my opinion. And that's the communication ends when the words leave my mouth. A lot of times when we think about what we're trying to communicate, what we do is we spend a lot of time thinking about the specific words we're going to use. I'm going to say this, then this, then this, and like, yes, this is very clear. We assume that communication ends when the words leave my mouth. Actually, in my opinion, communication ends when you hear the intention of your words repeated back to you by someone that's not you. This would completely fix the broken telephone game, right? No matter how clearly I whisper to the words to the person next to me, they're going to get garbled at some point down the line. If they simply repeat what I said right back to them, and I say, yes, that's right, or no, that's not right, and try again, we've completely solved the issue of miscommunication. Yeah. If you look at 
some of the most uh, dangerous professions on the planet where like miscommunications can lead to loss of life, they've totally cracked this nut. You know, you look at the military, healthcare, high voltage power engineers, places where if, if we don't get this communication right, there's a high chance someone's going to die. They all have some version of this repeating back, which I like to call a brief back. And so I got my brain really turning on like, well, why don't we do that at work? Like, I literally never have to have another miscommunication again. There's this very simple um, tool that I could use to stop all miscommunications. What's going on here? It's super awkward. It's really hard. And you just kind of have to get past that. And basically what it boils down to is that there's like a good way and a bad way to do a brief back. The good way is when you make it entirely about yourself right? Hey, Matt, I really want to make sure that I did a good job getting my point across. Can you just let me know what you took away from this conversation so I can be sure that I did a good job? Great. It's all about me and my communication style. The alternative to that is, hey, Matt, I want to make sure you were listening. Can you tell me what I just told you? I do not sound like a good person. It's very condescending. You're probably going to get really pissed off. Doesn't feel great. You know, and so it's this idea of just making sure that you frame the brief back in the right way so that it can fit inside of a regular office setting and then just practicing it. And the more you practice it, the better you get. It becomes a cultural norm. Many teams that I've worked on in the past, we do it so much that people will just say, can you brief me back on that? The ego is out of it. We all know what it means. You can easily use it on the other side as well. You know, Matt's giving me some instructions. That's great. When he's done, I can brief him back. Again, this is about keeping it on me. I'm not going to say, hey, Matt, I want to make sure that you communicated this really well. Is this what you said? I'm going to say, hey, Matt, I want to make sure I understood you in the way that you intended. I think what you just told me is X, Y, and Z. And what this gives us is an unbelievable check. A very quick, no, Jay, that's not quite what I meant. Let me try that again. You will never have another miscommunication ever again with another human being if you were to use a brief back at all times. Up to you, pick and choose where you where you want to place it, but it completely eliminates the miscommunications. And what I found is I thought I was quite a good communicator, but I wasn't really asking for feedback on my communication. I started doing brief backs and I realized like, you know, five, six times out of 10, my point's not landing in the way I'm intending it. And the more I'm doing brief backs, the more I was realizing, holy, this is like saving me a huge amount of time. Like we just aren't circling back to stuff that could have been solved up front. Like the, the brief box is an incredible tool, highly recommend its use. Nice. Uh, I think uh, it's a great framework. Um, and you mentioned me another thing, which I, uh, which I really like. It's about the, uh, the art of delegation. So you have a few kind of uh, interesting concept here. Uh, Maybe what you could advise the technical leaders, let's say, on the delegation and how we approach. I mean, specifically, like delegation itself. Yeah, you mentioned the mm, decision making diligence. I think mm -hmm. it was called. Uh, do working with executives, maybe. Um, there, there were a few concepts. Like we don't have to uh, go through all of them uh, because it's a broad topic. But maybe you can just, uh, you know. Uh, oh, some yeah. advice here. let's, let's like, let's keep pulling on the thread we're on about, um, you know, finding ways to create more space at work. And we'll, we'll talk about decision-making 
I'm a gigantic decision-making nerd. I'll just make that clear. So like I could probably prattle on about decision-making until you're bored. Um, There's two chapters in the book about it. I think there's two really important things is, uh, you know, how do you make better decisions and how do you make better decisions faster? I think to unpack both would be, would be tough, but um, we'll pick the second just because we're on, we're on the topic. So similar to miscommunications, uh, like poor decision-making diligence is like costing us roughly a day a week. Again, similar studies were done. Um, there was an interesting one done. Uh, I forget who it was by. I'm going to have to look that up. But basically, they, they pulled a couple thousand managers and they asked them how they're spending their time. And what they said is they're spending about uh, a little less than 40% of their time on decision-making. And then they asked them to like rate this time. And what they rated, what they said was half of this time is utterly wasted. And this boils down to roughly a day um, every single week. And so to recap, like more than a thousand managers are self-reporting that they are wasting a full day every single week on decision-making work that doesn't need to be done. So they're not saying we don't need to spend our time on decision-making. They're saying of all the time we spend on it, half of it is utter waste. That works out to a day a week, which is great. And you might think, amazing, I'm an individual contributor. I'm not a manager. Like, that's their problem. That's not mine. Who do you think they're wasting this time with? They're not sitting alone by themselves in a room, like mulling over a decision. They're in a, in a meeting with their team, with you, like going through a bunch of mechanics that like we just, we don't need to go through. And one of the things that I think is relatively pervasive in the the startup ecosystem is that like um, size equals slow. You know, the bigger we get, we just we have to go slower. And decision making is at the crux of a lot of things that that um, might slow us down. So I like to play a game. Um, I'll put you on the hot seat. I'm going to tell I'm going to describe a company to you. And um, you got to guess how long it takes them to make a decision. And I'll give you bonus points if you can tell me who they are. Okay. Okay. So the company is has 400,000 employees. Their budget is roughly $175 billion. Their objectives are relatively long-term, so they can't really learn from their decisions um, very quickly. The stakes are super high. A bad decision could literally kill somebody. And they have no chat, no Slack, no email, no cell phones to help speed up communications. So that's the company. It's a real company. How fast do you think they will make decisions? And double bonus extra points if you can uh, guess who it is. Oh boy, it's really hard. I would say like uh, three, four weeks. And this is something related to healthcare. Cool. Okay. So the answer is a single day and it's 1960s NASA. Single. Okay. So 1960s NASA, specifically the folks working on the Apollo um, moon landing. So they repeatedly demonstrated an ability to identify a problem in the morning, discuss it, and by the close of business that day, it will be solved, budget allocated, all the decisions made, they're ready to execute the next day. 400,000 people with decisions that could literally end somebody's life if they get them wrong. So picture your team today, for anyone who's listening, or Matt, like your team at the office, like, Take an average decision. Do you think you could get your average decision-making time down to a single day? It's incredible. 
right? And what this shows decades ago is that it doesn't need to be true that as we scale, we're going to slow down. Mm-hmm. And so when I first read about this, I thought to myself, wow, like this is an unbelievable case study. Like what the heck is going on there? Like, why is this happening? And because like I told you, I'm a gigantic decision-making nerd, um, you know, you naturally look into these things. And I started to find tons and tons of slowdowns to try to figure it out. And when I impacted it, what I learned is we're actually like intentionally building teams um, and operating in a way that is going to slow us down because we're not often recognizing some of the characteristics of the teams that we're building. So I'm sure by now the, the case for why you want a diverse team and how this makes your company better in pretty much every possible way is like ironclad. If we don't believe that, you know, go and do some research or, you know, there's plenty of, plenty of evidence out there to suggest it. The challenge is that we're like human beings are social animals. We're like, we're wired up for consensus. We just feel better when we agree. But the thing about a great decision is it doesn't need agreement. It needs alignment. And when we spend all of our time going towards agreement in ways that we don't want, we're creating a challenge. And the reason why is the more people that we hire on our team, And the more diversity of thought that we intentionally prioritize and bring on, so we have more people with more diverse thinking, the more disagreement we're by definition going to get. That's the whole point. And so what's a little bit paradoxical when you unpack it is actually the better we disagree, the faster we're going to decide. We're intentionally building up a team to disagree with each other because that's how we're going to get the best ideas. But we just have to get off this position of always having to agree with one another. We don't have to agree. We need to align. Nobody really helps us understand, like, how do we disagree better as a team of people? And I'll give you one very specific thing that you could go and do. Again, there's many. You can read about it in the book, but because we probably don't want this to be a 19-hour podcast, like the single most important thing that I think any team can do to rapidly accelerate their their decision-making is before you debate the decision at all, before we discuss at all what decision we're going to make, start by deciding who is going to decide. This is the number one cause of analysis paralysis in my experience. When we don't know who's deciding, we go round and around and around in endless debates. And it feels like my job in this meeting is to convince Matt that my perspective is the correct one. And Matt feels like his job is to convince me that his perspective is the right one. We do not need to do that. I don't need to agree with Matt's perspective. I just need to align with him on it so that I can execute against it. As soon as you decide who's going to decide, you pretty much break the analysis paralysis cycle. Let's say it's Matt. We say, Matt's going to make this decision, everybody. We're all on the same page. Matt's making the call. Great. We're going to debate. And at some point, Matt's going to say, I have what I need to go and make this decision. We're done. It's great. Thanks, Matt. Like, let us know what you decide when you decide. Alternatively, maybe we're going to take a vote, right? We're going to say, two weeks from now, we're going to get in a room. There's nine of us in this group. We're going to vote. Amazing. However much debate and analysis we've done, on that date, it's enough. We stop, we take the vote, it's finished. There's no more analysis required, we take the vote. 
The final way is consensus. It's not my recommendation. It's not my preferred approach, but you might choose to say, hey, this is one where everybody needs to agree. Fine. At least then we're explicit that we, Matt and I have to hammer this one out until the two of us share the same um, agreement. Fine. But we don't want to treat every decision in that particular way. So the number one thing you can do, literally you can do it in right after you listen to the podcast, do it in the first meeting that you have after this podcast is a decision's going to come up. Your team's going to start debating the thing. Say, hang on a sec. Who is actually going to make this decision? Oftentimes it requires a discussion. Hey, this should be Matt. No, it should be Jay. Great. Let's hash that out and be clear and then launch in. So always start by deciding who's going to decide and it will turbo boost the decision making on your team. Nice. I love the concept. Uh, I, I think uh, the consensus, I, I would not go this way. I, I think somebody said that the consensus usually brings the Medicore ideas. Uh, so it's not the not the best one. I don't remember who, you know, who said that, but, um, but I absolutely love the concept. And I think this is really easy to give it a try simply, you know, at your team. So you just have to remember, you know, you, it's like you have a, I have a buzzer in my brain, like, oh, we have to decide something. Hang on a sec. Whose call is this? You know, you get into all sorts of problems where it's like, who's the most senior person in the room? We're just assuming they're making it. Why are we making that assumption? You know, are they actually the best person to make that call? Like oftentimes not, you know, we talked about technical leaders as leaders. We're often very opinionated. Are you sharing an opinion with the group right now? Or are you telling them what decision needs to be made? It's very different, you know? And so just taking half a second to say, it's not Matt's call, it's Jay's. Great. Well, now I know that when Matt's telling me all the things that he thinks about this, that's my input to take away and go make whatever decision I think is right. It's not Matt telling me the way it needs to be. He's not giving me a direct. It's very, very hard to know that unless somebody has explicitly said, Jay, this is your call. You got to take it. Now let's go talk about it. Uh, uh, Jason, I, I wanted to ask you the last question that I have and I'm asking all of my guests. Um, could you recommend any you know books, resources, uh, podcasts uh, that have been particularly influential influential? you and helpful during your career i mean let's just say for fun my book (laughs) that's the first one that's that's for sure um so i I, i'll tell you about that one a second i guess um i think like lots so you know i i when i kind of went through this period of trying to figure myself out like reading became a big habit of mine, I was, I was, I was probably reading uh, like at least five books a month, every month for like two, three years. Like I, I really, I couldn't get enough of this, honestly. Um, and so picking one is, is really, is really tough. Um, but I think I'll pick two and, you know, maybe they're interesting for folks. You know, I, I think just because we've been talking about teams and business and things like that. Um, I'm a big fan of let my people go surfing, which is, uh, by the guy who founded Patagonia. And I think it's applicable to kind of anybody working in a company, especially at the leadership level. What's really interesting about Patagonia, like this book is, isn't as well known as a lot of the bigger business books that are out there. Patagonia was onto a lot of the, like, 
big cultural shifts and norms that you see in a lot of the, you know, exciting, sexy companies now, a long time ago, they were kind of trailblazers in this and, and, and seeing and reading about how they factored that stuff in as they were building the company and the way that it filtered into every decision, you know, not just like how are we going to treat our people, but like what products do we offer um, was a really, really interesting read. Um, and then other one would be uh, the courage to be disliked is one that just kind of stands out as if you haven't read it, I think it's like a very, um, it provides a very interesting perspectives on like, it's a philosophical book. You know, why do we do the things we do? How do you identify the reasons why you're doing something? How to align with like the real intention that you have inside? It's a bit of a challenging read just because it's originally translated from uh, Japanese. But um, for me, at least, it was a very different philosophical way of looking at like, why am I the way I am in the world and, and how might I want to change that? Those would be two. Awesome. Uh, uh, thank you. Yeah. Definitely, like, number one would be my book, Gonch. <laughs> if they could be, you know, even half as impactful as either one of those books, it would be it would be super. Um, there's a pre-order up right now, so you can go to quietlycrushingitbook.com. That's a lot of, to type, so you can also just go to qcibook.com, and I think we're doing, like, um, a 40% off or something with the, the list price will be when it comes out later this year. If you get the pre-order, you get access to some preview chapters. You get a monthly newsletter with some of the tactics that we talked about today that you can, you know, start using pretty much right away. So, would love the support. Would welcome feedback uh, about the book, and if it compares to either one of those two for you, I, I would love folks to uh, to let me know because it's um, it's a lot of work, and I'm looking forward to getting the book out there. Awesome. Jason, uh, thank you so much for the whole talk. I think the book will, will, will crush it. Uh, uh, I, I'm pretty sure. Uh, you shared the two concepts with me, so I'm, I, I read it here inspired, seriously. So thanks for a great talk, man, today. Thanks, Matt. Like, really appreciate it. Like, really appreciate you having me on and spending some time to think about some questions that you think would be interesting. And for the folks that made it all the way through the podcast, like, really appreciate you listening and, and, um, Yeah, would look forward to anyone getting in touch. Hope it was helpful today. Follow Matt on LinkedIn and subscribe to the Better Tech Leadership newsletter.